In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, I had a really interesting conversation with Dr. Armin Ra Mashariki, the head of urban analytics at global GIS company Esri. Armin has a really interesting background ranging from computer science and being a software engineer at Motorola to bioinformatics and cancer research analytics to being a political appointee in the Obama administration and then the chief analytics officer at the mayor's office in New York City. He shares with us the personal story that sparked his interest in the smart community space and the key lessons he's learned about developing smart communities over his career. We talk about what urban analytics is and why it's so valuable in developing smart thinking and how Armand works with cities and operational officials in the areas of data science, analytics and location intelligence. Armand tells us about his visit to Australia as well as an interesting case study where data analytics are being used to prevent housing discrimination in New York City. We discuss why integrating for the sake of integrating almost never works and what to do instead, and the emerging trends of sensors, drones, and blockchains being used in our cities. We finish our chat talking about the growing international trend of civic tech innovation, and Armin tells us how he sees the role of a smart resident in a smart community. As always, I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns, and smart cities. It's where we live, work, and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The smart community podcast is what you're looking for. Just before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you know that you can now support the Smart Community Podcast via Patreon. That's patreon.com slash smartcompod with two M's. If you become a patron, you'll get a special episode each month exclusive to supporters. Thank you so much for your support so far. It is my dream for the podcast to be self-sustaining so it can continue to be produced for my smart community no matter what the circumstances. Enough from me, on with the episode. Hello, Armin. How are you? I'm excellent, Zoe. How are you? I am fantastic. I'm so excited to get into this conversation. So can you tell us about your background and what you're passionate about? Sure. You know, I have the pleasure or the unique pleasure of sort of having a background in academia, private sector, and government all before I came, uh, all before I came back to uh, private sector in Esri. I was a research faculty at, uh, right out of uh, graduate school, actually. I, was, um, I worked at Motorola as a software engineer, so very technical. All my, my background is mostly, computer, is mostly computer science. Then from there, I went back and got my doctorate. And after I got my doctorate, I was research faculty uh, in bioinformatics, uh, which is sort of medical analytics. And so uh, from there, I, w- I did some research in, at the University of uh, Chicago Cancer Research Center. And so I worked mainly in uh, cancer research uh, analytics. And then at that point, I became, um, I went back to Hopkins and uh, spent some time in Hopkins. And from there was my first foray into government. Uh, I uh, was a White House fellow uh, and then a political appointee in the Obama administration. And so I was an executive, a technology executive in the Obama administration. And then from there, 
That's when I was uh, recruited to be the chief analytics officer at, in New York City. And I spent about three and a half years um, as the chief analytics officer and the director of the mayor's office of data and analytics. And um, then moved on to Esri. And uh, since for the last year or so, I've been the head of urban analytics at Esri. Wow. That's such an amazing background. I'm so excited to hear about some of the things you're doing or have done. Let's let's start very quickly with um, what kind of sparked your interest in this kind of smart city space? Uh, you know, I, I was, I'm actually born and raised uh, in New York City. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And, you know, I lived in, in New York at the time where it was really sort of, um, you know, growing as a city and trying to find its place in terms of um, um, quality of life for everyone across New York City. And, you know, when I, you know, one thing I didn't mention was, you know, I was a software engineer at Motorola and working in uh, the area of design and uh, security. And my nephew was uh, diagnosed with uh, leukemia at the time. He was around six or seven. And at that point is when I knew, or I really got the sense that I needed to move towards using, um, so I was going into my uh, doctoral program at the time. I said, you know what? Because of this, I know that I need to start using technology to help people, right? And to make, uh, places and spaces that I'm at better, right? And so from that mindset, I went to the, into the medical space. Once I went to the, into the Obama administration and went into government, I knew that there were so many complex problems in government that my expertise uh, could really uh, be applied to that I knew the next space um, and, and by the way, my nephew is, you know, um, cancer free and, you know, he's excellent. So I knew, I knew the next space for me was going to be in applying, you know, my um, advanced technology and data skills um, in the, um, in the government space. And so, and then what was really interesting is when, you know, I take my city background and think about how fast cities, how fast paced cities are, how aggressive cities are, and the impact that cities have on people's lives. When you, when you watch certain movies, oftentimes directors will tell you the city is, is another character in the movie itself. You know, cities have this way of being and having cities themselves, the way that they're constructed and built and designed have an impact on your life. You know, you could be having a bad day and go take a, a walk on the promenade or the wharf and it just makes you feel better. Or many people in New York City will tell you, you know, when you see the skyline, it just has an impact on you. Right. And so I knew that um, working in a city was going to be the next um, space where I wanted to have an impact because it has such uh, a role in people's lives. Yeah, awesome. It makes a lot of sense. So based on your experience working in New York City, what are some of the key lessons you've learned about developing this, you know, smart city or smart community? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, John Lennon is known for, for saying, you know, life is what happens while you're busy making plans. And I think one of the things I learned is that, you know, a lot of us, we talk about planning for smart cities, but oftentimes, um, one of the biggest lessons I learned is that smart cities are responsive cities. That is, uh, you can plan with the biggest corporations and, and, and plan 10 years, 20, 30 years out, 
what a smart city looks like. But what you have to be prepared for are things that happen day to day, hour to hour, minute by minute in cities, because cities are such a uh, sort of tactical, uh, uh, fast paced moving entity that any number of things can happen. And so you really have to also think about when you think about smart cities, you have to think about a city that's uh, responsive, right? A city that is um, able to be um be able to respond to the things that happen on a minute by minute, hour by hour basis. Mm, cool. Well, let's jump into like what's happening now. And can you tell us about the urban analytics? So you talked a little bit about this already, but what does it mean and why is it so valuable in developing you know, smart cities and fueling this kind of smart city thinking? So urban analytics is um, sort of a framework, a way um, city leadership can think about pulling together best practices and strategies and mechanisms and protocols for being a responsive city. And most importantly, being a responsive city using data, urban data and data science, right? And specifically as its core framework, location intelligence. So if you look at every single city um, in the world, every city has its own personality, its own level of complexity and its own complexion. What urban analytics says is devoid of those differences, there are ways that you can think about, you know, being useful and being able to solve problems for a city. And these are the core ways um, that you use data and data science and location intelligence to solve those problems. So it's really sort of this sort of underpinning framework that can be used to drive um, operational success and operational efficiencies in cities. So you were previously the chief analytics officer of the city of New York and the director of the mayor's office of data analytics. Um, And now, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now in the company you're working for and how they kind of use urban analytics in this space? So a lot of, you know, like you mentioned, I was the chief analytics officer in New York City, and I focused primarily on New York City because the day-to-day was so intense and so aggressive. I didn't really get a lot of time to sit back and think about what are other people doing? How are they doing it? What are some things that have been successful? What are some things that haven't been successful? The MOTA had to be very uh, responsive and had to be good almost all of the time. And so I didn't get the opportunity to sit back and do research and think about what works, what doesn't work. In my role at Esri as the head of urban analytics, I really now have that opportunity to step back. One of the things I do, you know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm here in Australia and I'm doing interviews like this and doing talks, but I always say that the biggest thing that I get out of these travels is actually what I learn from what the different governments and and entities are doing around data and analytics and solving sort of operational challenges in cities. So part of my role is really understanding the bigger picture and how other cities are thinking, what they're doing, what are some of the global best practices, and then begin to synthesize all of that such that we can help build out this thought process of urban analytics. So that urban analytics is not just a collection of best practices from New York City, but it's a truly global uh, set of best practices and strategies that cities are, across the world can utilize. So I spend a lot of time thinking about that. And then also 
I spend some some of my time actually rolling up my sleeves and getting into cities and working with cities to implement strategies and technologies, right? And so, you know, one project um, that I'm working on with some folks is building out a predictive model uh, to predict uh, where, um, based on historical data, to predict where there's a likelihood of an opioid overdose to happen in a city, right? So these are sort of some of the projects types of projects that I'm working on. Also, um, a homeless uh, a project to identify in a city where to place, what's the most um, efficient and relevant place uh, to put a new homeless uh, shelter, you know, as opposed to just finding, well, where's a place where there's space, um, what actually makes the most sense, and using data and analytics for that. So I not only think about these thought leadership things, but I also oftentimes roll up my sleeves and uh, engage with cities to help them solve certain problems. Mm, Excellent. So you're here in Australia, which is super exciting. In Australia, you know, the population growth um, is one of the issues, particularly in in urban areas. Well, exactly in urban areas, um, not necessarily the regional areas, but particularly in these urban areas. And and obviously this is going to impact on, you know, urban planning, transport, um, infrastructure and, and that kind of thing. So how does this like increase in density and population growth and urbanization create some opportunities there for this smart city concept to come in? A couple of things. There's this, uh, you know, thought process around opportunity and, you know, oftentimes opportunity is taking advantage of things that are happening um, at such a fast, a fast pace, right? And so you talked about increased density and population growth. And Increasing density and population growth brings around all sorts of challenges of providing services, um, all sorts of challenges in providing, um, ensuring that a city is resilient and sustainable, all sorts of challenges in, in terms of equity, equitable, providing equitable services. And so with these challenges, when you surface a lot of these complex challenges that comes with a growing population and increasing density within cities, you have to be innovative around providing solutions. And smart city thinking is really just that. It's how do you think innovatively and thoughtfully around solving urban challenges? And we have to now, we can't rely on the same solutions that we've had, that we've relied on uh, historically to provide um, a high quality of life for all of these people that are moving into these urban centers. And so, the opportunity here is that we get we now um, have have the space to think differently, and under the smart city thinking, it is the sort of the space is created for us to now um, be innovative, be thoughtful, um, and even think out of the box in terms of what uh, solutions we can bring to bear. Mm. So, what should the top priorities be for local governments that? have to, you know, take on some of these challenges. What advantage do you see in implementing some of this, you know, technology and way of thinking? Yeah, so I I think every government key priority, main priority is safety, right? And so under safety there's any number of things, but that's paramount, right? And that's one of the most important priorities that a government has is to keep its citizens safe. And there's so many complex things around that in terms of um, safety around crime, safety around emergency response, and so on and so forth. And so there are a lot of mechanisms that can be brought to bear to allow for 
smarter safety protocols in cities. For instance, one is uh, uh, emergency response. As cities grow and they become more dense and become more complex, it becomes harder and harder for emergency vehicles uh, to reach individuals um, in the time that they're expected to reach individuals after 911 or some emergency call is made. And so we can use certain technologies to help either route vehicles in a more thoughtful uh, and efficient way, or we can use technologies, and this is one of the things we've done in New York City, you can use location intelligence to identify where to station vehicles so that they're not just sitting, you know, at the EMS vehicles, they're not just sitting at the firehouse waiting for a call, they're actually stationed in strategic locations across the city that allow for them to have the fastest response to things that may happen. Right? So these are some of the um, priorities of, uh, of governments in sort of responding to being able to be smarter and more capable. So in Australia, who are you meeting with and what kind of topics are you discussing? So, you know, I spend a lot of time meeting with organizations that are looking to centralize uh, data analytics, right? And so I've met with organizations that have these centralized data analytics teams that are looking to, you know, collaborate across the government, right? I've met with police departments who are thinking about how to use data and analytics to be more responsive to the community. So I mostly meet with um, officials who are in a space where they want to grow their ability to use data and analytics uh, to solve really complex problems in the city. And part of that growth is about how do we think about data collaboration, sharing data um, and uh, uh, providing for a platform and a capability for data to be shared across the city. Because once you grow your data infrastructure, your ability to use um, analytics, data science, and location intelligence grows exponentially. So I'm mostly meeting with operational leadership uh, across the city, not so much policy or executive leadership, more so operational leadership. Yeah, excellent. Now, before you came on the podcast, I've been reading some of the case studies and articles that, you know, you kind of oversaw some of the examples. Wondering if it's okay if I just ask you to talk about them. Um, just, I was really keen to hear more about the, like, or just explain to the audience about the preventing the housing discrimination, how you use analytics to kind of target those areas as well and and then also like you know it actually resulted in something being different so wondering if you could talk about that if you don't mind no absolutely absolutely don't um so that gives me an opportunity to sort of share sort of the model of moda which you know when when i started there i really shifted our model to be more of a service model so it was while we were in mayor's office i really said you know what we're going to serve agencies. And so the way I looked at us was that we were a no-cost analytics consulting firm. And so the Commission on Human Rights came to us and said, look, we're looking to be more proactive in identifying discrimination in terms of people looking to rent um, housing. And so uh, income discrimination in New York City is a, a civil rights violation. And prior to them coming to us, the only way that uh, Commission on Human Rights actually knew or had a sense that that law was being broken or someone was being discriminated against based on their level of income and type of income is if it was reported 
after the fact. And the way it would be reported is someone would say, hey, I feel like I was discriminated against. We have these vouchers called Section 8 vouchers. They're public assistance vouchers. And so oftentimes someone who has um, a welfare voucher, a public assistance voucher, would go to rent an apartment and they felt like they had all of the qualifications. They felt like it was the perfect apartment. Everything worked well, except for the fact that when they decided to tell the person, oh, here's my Section 8 voucher, then all of a sudden that person didn't want to rent to them for whatever reason. Prior to that, when that happens, prior to them coming to us, when that happens, the Commission on Human Rights basically takes down that allegation and then they inspect it and so on and so forth. But it's after it happens. So they wanted to be more predictive and more proactive. They wanted to figure out where is it most likely for these instances to occur. So what we did was we looked at data uh, across the city that we were managing. So for instance, data on crime. Um, So we looked at neighborhoods that had low crime rates. We looked at neighborhoods that had quality of life things such as low traffic, a lot of park space, green space, right? Um, We looked at businesses, the types of businesses that were in those areas. We also looked at, we took data around where there was actually low or mid-income housing. So good low to mid-income housing, but then there seemed to be no renting of those houses with Section 8 vouchers. So essentially what we did was we created this de facto quality of life index. And if there's high quality of life index and also good low to mid-income housing stock, but there doesn't seem to be many people renting with Section 8 vouchers, that was curious to us. So what we would do is we would report that information to the Commission on Human Rights, and then they would hire up actors and actresses, and they would send them to the locations that we identified, the actual neighborhoods and buildings that we identified where this could likely be happening. And they would have Section 8 vouchers, some wouldn't. And so they would basically do A-B testing in areas. And this was a way for the Commission on Human Rights to find out where these acts of discrimination were happening without them actually having to happen. So a very predictive way of um, sort of being proactive for a city. Mm, Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. And I guess it kind of leads into this next question, um, because I imagine a lot of people would have had to come together, um, you know, and integrate across different, you know, disciplines and government and industry in order to, you know, bring that to, to life. So can you tell us some ideas on how we can better integrate across the different disciplines, governments, industries? Sure. I think to answer that question, I always, you know, a best practice for me is, Integrating for the sake of integrating, coming together for the sake of coming together almost never works. We've tried that tons of time. You have to have a shared challenge, a shared problem. So what's the question that you're looking to solve? Once you identify the question, then you have to break that question down from a standpoint of, is the answer a policy answer? Because what you don't want Uh, with data and integrated data is to have a hammer going around looking for a nail. You want to identify the question and then get a breakdown of, well, will policy changes actually answer the question? Maybe we don't need data. Or will a design change answer the question? Maybe a shift in how we provide services currently answer the question? Or will data and analytics answer the question? And if so, all of it 
or some portion of it, is there a combination of policy and data and analytics that answers the question? Once you figure that part out, and then you say, well, if it's data that's going to be helpful here, you come to the conclusion that data is a part of the solution, then the question is, well, what data? And then that's when you identify which data sets across the city and even in private sector uh, can be used. At that point, um, you identify um, the people that can come together and be a part of this data collaborative to provide the data and the analytics to help solve this particular problem. So it all must start from identifying a question and then galvanizing the group to be a part of the solution. Because you're not going to get people to the table if they feel like they're just here to provide data. It's kind of like going to someone and saying, there's no real reason why, but we want to just draw your blood. We just want your blood and we just want to store it. We don't have any reason. We don't know that there's going to be a reason to use it. But we think it's really important for us just to um, have it, just for the sake of having it. You're going to get very little participation, right? Even the best and the most successful blood drives usually happen for a specific reason, right? You get, you get lines around the building when there is some need uh, for that, right? Um, blood drives will tell you we get less participants when it's, you know, just regular day. But if something has happened, some tragedy or, or some need, arises and it's clear to the public that this is a need, you get far more people who are willing to be a part of this effort. And that's how you have to think about data, even though sharing data is far more simpler and easier than sharing blood. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And this next question is about when we're moving into, so we've already got this, you know, range of disruptive technologies that are happening um, right now. What do you see the emerging trends or the next challenges that cities will need to embrace and manage or face? And how important is that that this disruptive technology, you know, actually delivers benefit to citizens? So I guess there's two parts. Like what are the emerging trends that our cities will face? And then how can these emerging trends deliver benefit for the citizens? Yeah. So when you say emerging trends, you mean trends in technology usage? Yeah. I think the next challenge is like sometimes um, when I ask this question, I get technology trends. Sometimes I get like human, you know, trends that we're not talking about enough. So however you would like to answer it, I'm open. Yeah, so I think one is uh, sensors. Uh, sensors um, with where really um, cities are really uh, trying to get their arms wrapped around what types of sensors should exist in cities, where they should be, what these sensors should be understand, um, you know, gathering, what kind of data they should be gathering to drive what uh, need in the city. Also, um, drones are a big question of how are we how do we take advantage of drone technology in cities, in municipal spaces in terms of security and so on and so forth? I think there's an underlying, I'll put a circle around sensors and drones and say uh, smarter privacy mechanisms and protocols that can support these sorts of efforts. Sensors and drones uh, implementation in cities are not going to be as um, useful without clarity around uh, privacy protocols and policy. Another is blockchain. I think that's a, uh, a technology that, again, that cities are trying to wrap their heads around and be thoughtful around how to use uh, this technology. 
And then um, lastly, I think one of the things that is really, really, really emerging aggressively, New York City just passed the law. Uh, my office was very influential in helping to get this law passed and helping to craft it and helping to drive the idea around this law. But New York City is the first city in the world to pass a law that requires any agency in New York City who, who creates a decision support system or an algorithm that is meant to provide a service to a New Yorker to ensure that that algorithm is public and transparent and also the data being used for that algorithm is also public, right? And so what it is meant uh, to get out in front of is algorithmic bias. You know, now that we're investing in AI and machine learning and all of these technologies, we need to ensure that we're not building these technologies to create bias and to contribute to bias. And so you're seeing a lot of cities are now, ever since that law passed, a lot of cities into both domestic to the United States and international. I've had, you know, Barcelona reach out to me, uh, Canada reach out to me. I've had discussions in places like Singapore and China around algorithmic bias and how to protect against algorithmic bias now that where cities are, are moving further and further into this space of AI and implementing AI. So I you know, I really think that that's going to be a key element that uh, cities have to uh, be very thoughtful about adoption. I guess it's about protecting our citizens or our smart citizens. So I'm keen to hear, like, what do you think the role of the smart citizen or residents are in these, you know, smart cities or communities that we're creating? Do you think does the government want them to get involved in the U.S.? And how do we kind of progress and promote and encourage them to get involved? Yeah, you know, um, you know, I like to use, uh, I like to say that democracies provide pathways for citizens to engage with their government. And data, in, in this instance, particularly open data, makes those pathways far more salient uh, and far more powerful. And so that's the role of government in terms of providing, using open data as a mechanism for providing a tool for citizens to be more thoughtful and be smarter and be able to engage in a more impactful way, right? And citizens, you know, what I've seen in New York City, which is a trend internationally for sure, and is, is really growing is civic engagement, right? But not only civic engagement, uh, civic tech engagement. And so how are communities um, showing their participation in government and in community using data and analytics? And so there, you know, it used to be showing up at town halls was one of those pathways for citizens to engage with their government. Now building dashboards and showing certain abuses that take place or, or doing analysis of open data uh, to help governments think more efficiently and smarter about their uh, governance strategy. This relationship between citizen and government is growing exponentially and data um, and analytics are, is the linchpin for that growth. Yeah, because one of the other articles or one of the other, what's the word I'm looking for? The examples that I was reading was about Ben Wellington when uh, he made, I guess, use the open data for the ticket because um, he got that ticket. Do you want to quickly explain that? We're kind of at the end, but I'm, I thought that one was quite cheeky and fun. 
Yeah, sure. That one was interesting. So um, essentially, Ben Wellington was wrongly ticketed for parking in front of a pedestrian ramp that city council said you can park in front of. So he figured, he wondered, how many more people did this impact? And when he did the research, because open data, my office released data around when a person pays for, when a person pays a parking ticket, we released data on when that person paid that parking ticket, where the infraction took place, and how much they paid. We don't release any personal information about them. So he looked at the open data and he identified all of these locations where ticketing was happening and he compiled all of this information um, and then he used Google Street View to identify where these tickets were taking place and he realized um, to the tune of millions of dollars, people were being wrongly ticketed. And what was important about that was that he reached out to me and said, hey, Amin, this is what's happening. I'm going to write a blog post about this, but I think that I would like to work with NYPD on this effort. And I don't want it to come out as a, a negative thing. I want it to come out as what we just talked about, an engagement, a community engagement strategy for open data and showing the power of open data. And so, you know, the conversation we had was around the city can either respond defensively or be proactive. And we, the government responded proactively in saying, hey, you know what? Ben is right. This is great analysis. Here's the thing. It's going to help us um, be smarter about this. It's going to help us retrain uh, NYPD. And it's going to help us be thoughtful about these sorts of things such that this mistake doesn't happen again in another venue. Right? And so it helped. His effort helped to make, in my opinion, New York City a smarter city for its uh, citizens. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that again. And thanks so much for coming on to the Smart Community Podcast. I'm really excited that you were able to come on and we've had such a great conversation. So thanks again. Thank you so much for your time, Zoe. I really appreciate it. Have fun. No, that's awesome. I just have one last question, which is how can people connect with you? Uh, so I have a Twitter uh, handle at, at amashariki, A-M-A-S-H-A-R-I-K-I. And also, um, I have email the same, amashariki at esri.com. Excellent. We'll put the links in the show notes so people can click away and find you. Thanks again for coming onto the podcast. Um, it's been great. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Zoe. Thanks. Talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community or find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter at smartcompod. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears, so thank you in advance. As always, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.